welcome to the gift of the struggle today we are here with sarah mccarthy i met her at um some lgbt uh community work that both of us were attending in uh, mobile alabama and i thought it was a really important thing that she was doing so i wanted to bring her on to talk about the importance of data and study and analysis she's in academia at the university of uh, alabama at birmingham um so sarah welcome thank you so tell us, tell us a little bit about what you're doing and how you got to Alabama, because you are not from here. No. Uh, so I guess a little bit about myself. I actually grew up overseas. Uh, my mom was an elementary school teacher and my dad was in the foreign service. And so um, when I was really little, I lived in a country called Swaziland. It's now called Eswatini. And then later lived in Egypt and Brazil and Argentina and um actually started um, my my professional life uh, working in global health and I was focused on HIV. And um, it was actually when I was living in Brazil and um, I was doing my master's and then eventually my, my doctoral level studies at um, the Harvard School of Public Health that um, I just was sitting in these HIV clinics and I saw who was walking through the door and I started to, to, to meet and engage and get to know a lot of the, the different people living with HIV. And I saw how it disproportionately impacted um, people who identify as LGBTQ. Mm. And I also started to have a lot of um, friends who over time became like family. Um, and I think that gave me a really different perspective um, that emphasized the importance of HIV and the need to to look at address HIV in the larger continuum of health needs. So uh, not only looking at infectious diseases, but also uh, considering primary care, uh, dental, vision, you know, uh, really viewing people as um, holistic and, and what are all of our different needs in terms of uh, mental, physical, um, and then further putting putting health in the context of also considering education, housing, employment, mm-hmm. um, and and really starting to to figure out how all of these pieces do and don't fit together. And so um, I started my career doing um, LGBTQ related research, and I do what's called mixed methods research, which means. Um, I do quantitative analyses, which is taking, you know, big data sets and understanding what they're saying. And then I also um, really love qualitative research, which is talking to people and understanding and listening to their stories and seeing what's similar and different. And then trying to put those pieces together to to see how the quantitative and the qualitative data speaks. And um, I've been living in Los Angeles, California with my husband and two kids for almost 10 years and I saw a job listing and uh, the full title is the Magic City LGBTQ Health Studies Endowed Professorship. So just to sort of disentangle what that means because it's a lot of academic speak. If you have an endowed professorship, it means it is completely protected by the university and um, it cannot be taken away, changed, et cetera. Um, when there's a shift in politics, um, and that's really important in working in the field of LGBTQ health, Mm -hmm. that regardless of of what's happening in the larger um, political and economic environment, that there is protection to do this work and to really move the science forward. And 
you know, the job description was just, I, I thought it was beautifully written. There's a focus on research, which um, something a little strange about me, but I do love it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, I've found, you know, the type of research I do, which is community-based participatory research. It's the idea that you build friendships, partnerships with local communities um, and, and together, um, you know, listen to what their most pressing needs are and then use research um, practices to, um, you know, work in collaboration to figure out how to address those needs. And, and then there's a focus on teaching, which I think is truly, you know, one of the, the, the biggest forms of advocacy and in training the next generation of LGBTQ advocates um, to understand that the field of LGBTQ health is built on evidence and data to inform practice and policies. It's not something that's, you know, just made up. Um, It's evolving quickly. I think people can feel some fatigue from how quickly the terms, the concepts are are changing. And I really think that's a function of um, just how quickly our knowledge base is moving. And uh, that's exciting. And, you know, I get it. It can be tiring to to constantly have to keep up and understand what what the cutting edge of research and practice looks like. Um, And then there's this other component of building relationships with the community. And and I define community as, students, faculty, staff who are LGBTQ themselves, as well as advocates, and then uh, organizations who are working at this intersection. I started off first by um, building those relationships here in Birmingham, and then the uh, where you and I met in Mobile was an example of, of how I hope to, to build those relationships beyond Birmingham and really understand who's doing this work across the state and eventually the region. And um, it just it <laughs> genuinely felt like uh, an opportunity of a lifetime to really um, work across these different domains from research, practice, and teaching um, to address LGBTQ health um, in a region that um, arguably has some of the most um, aggressive anti-LGBTQ programs and policies. Um, and to do this work in collaboration with people who have been fighting this fight for a long time and to learn from them um, and to figure out how I can use my position at the university to, um, to, to really support their work agenda, um, friends, families, uh, you know, policies, programs, and everything in between. Yeah, you know, you talked about fatigue of, of keeping up with all the terminology and all this, the things that, were, that are progressing and changing, but there's also fatigue from the people who've been fighting the fight mm. and mm-hmm. the lack of education, you know, as somebody who's an advocate and somebody who has a gay child uh, who grew up mostly in Alabama um, and has seen some of the things that our family has had to endure and some of the political struggles that we've been met with and the ostracization after we have spoken out about it, um, the, the isolation of it. But I'll tell you what, one of the things that people don't know in Alabama even is about the aggressive anti LGBTQ laws. Mm -hmm. And they don't know that based on a religious exemption, medical people can deny service. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I'll just tell you one little personal story. My son was in, uh, the oral surgeon's office getting his wisdom teeth out after his first year of college. 
And he's one of those that can pass. You would never know necessarily if you met him, whether he was gay, straight, whatever. (laughs) But once he was under, he started singing Lady Gaga. It was on the radio in the background. And he, and I just thought he became more and more (laughs) evident. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, He was, he was just letting himself go. And I was reading the book, uh, White Fragility for a book club. Cause I had a book club mm-hmm. meeting that afternoon. So mm-hmm. I'm reading that trying to catch up with where I'm supposed to be. The doctor sees it and starts making comments about how black people are too sensitive. That's what he got out of white fragility. I'm like, mm. I'm not sure how he got that, but I started to see where his, his mind was. Mm-hmm. And my son's got a needle in his arm. He woke up during the middle of surgery. So he's a little traumatized because he, he could see what was going on and was having pain and things. And all I could think was, I want my kid out of here right now Mm, because I could see the guy's point of view. And I thought until you have felt that fear, I mean, that's as close as I can come to personal fear because I am not a part of that community. But as a mother, you know, if your child is Mm, at risk and and yeah, you, you immediately engage. And I wanted him out of there that second. Mm -hmm. And -hmm. when I expressed that to somebody, they're like, they can't do that. I'm like, yes, they can. You do mm-hmm. not know what the laws are. And I think that's part of the problem. So in terms of education, letting other people know that your 19-year-old kid who's just trying to get through his wisdom teeth, he did not luckily realize it because he was too drunk on anesthesia, but I got it real quick. So I think, you know, that's what people are living with, that that level of fear in their medical lives, their social lives, their their school experience. Luke had teachers turn around and walk in the other direction after we fought against a a reading list that was kind of awful for him. Um, But in order to do that, we have to have the research, we have to have the numbers, we have to have the data. So it's, it's like a mixed bag of trying to figure out where to focus, how to find all of the people we need in order to focus on all of the different Mm -hmm. multi-pronged approaches that we do need. So talk to us a little bit about why this needs assessment specifically in the data and research that you do in the broader sense, why does it matter and why do we need it so badly? Yeah. I mean, to, to completely oversimplify, like we don't know what we don't know. Yeah. Right. I think that's that there's, there's a lot of reasons and um, one significant factor contributing to the invisibility of LGBTQ communities is the total lack of data. Mm-hmm. So at both the state and, and even at the national level, there continues to be almost a total dearth of data um, that is representative, that is, um, and that means, you know, can be reflective of these like larger population surveys mm-hmm. to understand um, if and when there are differences Um, if and when there are inequities, which means that there's an injustice driving that difference, not just a difference because, because, you know, um, you know, some people have a tendency to be born shorter versus taller, Mm -hmm. um, but really when there are larger structural factors driving those differences, um, without that data, we don't know when to tailor programs and policies. Um, So I think that, um, I, I understand. I understand. And I think more so since moving to Alabama and experiencing the uh, most recent wave of anti-LGBTQ legislation, the sense of urgency behind what do we do now and understanding that often, not always, often good data collection takes time. Um, quite frankly, any good research does because um, 
fundamental to conducting quality research is doing it in close collaboration with local communities, which takes building trust, yeah. uh, which takes building capacity, both of the researchers and the community members, um, and then to do it in a, in a really strategic way um, such that there continues to be, you know, feedback loops, improvements, um, dissemination points throughout the research process, not just at the end. And so, um, and I think at the same time, you know, I had the opportunity to go to Montgomery and uh, sit in on the hearings um, with respect to SB 184, which was the Alabama specific um, law that would criminalize providers for um, for engaging in gender affirming care. And, um, you know, I have to say those those few days of, of sitting and, and listening to both sides, it it honestly just renewed my love affair of research. Mm. I think that what I saw was um, having a substantial and significant base of evidence that informs the guidelines to be clear that it takes an entire process in order for a guideline to be developed. Mm -hmm. um, that is based on not any single study, but truly the um, conglomeration and the synthesis of those results by um, multiple experts to decide what in fact is um, high quality care and to see the ways in which research fed into that process and ultimately um, create the base upon which a Trump appointed judge with a conservative history ruled for an injunction, which enables the continued provision of gender affirming care as this continues to go up the courts. So on one hand, uh, yes, it's acknowledging the, the, the long timeline for research. On the other hand, in those two days with the research presented, I saw how it swayed and informed a significant decision that had immediate impact in the provision of gender affirming care. So I think trying to hold both those things is true, uh, to understand that long timeline and then the ways in which that data can be used um, to continue to advocate for um, the provision of high quality care. Mm -hmm. Both can be true. And the approach in addressing LGBTQ health and well-being needs to be, as you said, multi-pronged, right? Like we need the, the long pipeline of research. We need the immediate advocacy. We need the marches. We need the protests. We need um, all of these different approaches in order to contribute to really moving um, I mean, I, I don't want to say the needle because that makes it, you know, just seem so, so, so small and singular, um, mm -hmm. but really advancing the, the health, well-being and rights of LGBTQ communities. Yeah. And so what, what you were talking about was the, the, the law that they were passing that you could not, that would criminalize gender affirming care for trans youth, right? Correct. And so the provision was that they said that care can continue as it goes through the pipeline. So those who are already in process of getting that care will not have to stop right now. True. Um, yes, as it continues to go up the courts. Right, until there's- So, so the clinics that are currently providing gender-affirming care can remain open and, and still do that. see clients, et cetera. Right, so I, I had lunch, or I actually had wine yesterday mm -hmm. with um, a friend of mine who's a trans woman. And she, I said to her, what impact does it have on these kids to have to stop if that provision had not passed. 
what would be the impact? And she said, kids would die. Yeah. 100%. Because they have had their hopes snatched out from under them. So talk to us a little bit about some of the research that you're doing and some of the data that talks about that kind of thing, about the impact of all of these decisions that are being made by legislators who are not educated or not yet educated mm-hmm. on the impact of, of these decisions on our youth, but not just the youth, the adults too. I mean, it's, it affects the whole entire community and their families. It's not mm-hmm. just even the LGBTQ people, but people like me and my whole entire family who would be impacted by Luke not being able to get the health and care that he needed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, um, you know, first focusing on the youth, um, there is a lot of misunderstanding, as you said, um, but it's not just misunderstanding. There's also people who know and understand and then have uh, bias, mm-hmm. uh, stigma and discrimination, right? right. So right. I think um, to start with, with the data and what studies have consistently shown, you know, first um, there's looking at puberty blockers, mm-hmm. which um, essentially what you're doing is buying time. Right. You're, you're giving youth just a little bit more breathing room before their their body starts puberty to to really propel in one direction or the other to give them a little bit more time to live live into the uh gender that they want to identify with Mm -hmm. and um the other thing is to, to 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 try and really think through Um, if you can, you know, even close your eyes and think about being in your body. And um, if you're someone who has gender dysmorphia, the idea that how you view yourself is inconsistent with your physical body, then any expression of that difference, the growth of breasts, the, um, you know, growth of genitalia, um, further exaggerates that hate and discomfort. Mm -hmm. And so, so many, um, so many youth experience high levels of, of cutting, of suicide ideation attempts, um, puberty blockers give that breathing room. If you take away that breathing room, you're then accelerating a kid towards that body that they hate and exaggerating that sense of hate. Mm -hmm. The idea with gender affirming affirming hormones then is that it, it, if, uh, if a child continues, um, from puberty blockers to gender affirming hormones, which not all do and is appropriate, right? The idea is that there's multiple checks, multiple opportunities for the youth, their family, their providers to mm-hmm. say, where are we? How is this working? Is this, is this the direction we continue want to go to, to go in? Um, that it can enable the youth to go through one puberty, right? Rather than having to go through multiple puberties. And so um, like the, the, the data is really quite clear, right? In terms of how access to this care dramatically reduces um, mental health, negative mental health outcomes, in addition to this whole range of behaviors that I was just talking about, disordered eating, cutting, um, suicide ideation attempts, and so um, it's, this is where I shift from um, some people don't have education and, and that's, you know, an important gap to fill. And then there's um, what happens when people have the knowledge, um, but then enters the prejudice bias 
stigma, discrimination. So I try and think of other areas of, for example, um, access to mental health care, right? That for, for some um, counseling can, can be sufficient and for others, um, after going through the medical diagnostic tests, there's a determination that you need access to medication. Mm -hmm. And often access to that medication can result in dramatic shifts for um, the overall health. This is not something that's taken lightly. Right. This, you know, there's there's multiple steps, multiple discussions, both with the youth, the parents. There are some um, side effects, you know, often being on, on uh, different mental health medications, there can be, you know, decreased uh, sex drive and, and other things like that. Um, and what you're doing is weighing the overall mental health versus the, like, it's, it's this more balanced discussion and decision-making. Mm -hmm. I think of a similar systematic scientific approach is taken to the provision of gender affirming care informed by these guidelines supported by multiple organizations, both in the US and elsewhere. Um, the science continues to improve to make sure, again, similar to a range of other disease diseases that it can be diagnosed with greater certainty than, than was diagnosed 10 years previous, 50 mm -hmm. years previous, et cetera. Um, however, because of the, uh, the fact that, you know, a focus on a trans kid in particular, as well as LGBTQ youth more broadly as a wedge issue, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a very tired political play, right? Who, who is the most disempowered and then how can we use them to, to, instill fear and elevate a platform um, to, to vote largely based on a misunderstanding. Yeah. Um, or an unwillingness to become educated or to entertain the idea that you could be wrong. <laughs> yeah, I just, I think that the, the reason I'm pushing back so much on the idea of education, and trust me, this hurts my heart to do it because yeah. like, as a scientist, I believe that like data equals knowledge equals power. Mm -hmm. And I think it, it became clear to me in a very visceral way as we're moving through um, and continue to move through the COVID epidemic, how um, that knowledge doesn't always translate into action. Yeah. And to ignore the larger political context in which this knowledge exists um, will ultimately uh, completely undercut your ability to, to try and, um, you know, address what's happening. And so I, I just think that, you know, when we talk about knowledge, um, we do need to, we all need to figure out how to engage more thoughtfully, more empathetically in conversations to try and address these broader range of concerns that aren't just, you know, based on fact, et cetera but the fears behind them, the misunderstandings, the uh, belief systems, right? And how they contribute to um, literally putting one fact out there and one person reading it one way and another person reading it differently. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't, I think we have really um, on all sides of the political spectrum stunted our ability to engage in those very difficult, very nuanced conversations. And so I think that um, data, data is a huge part of it. Yes. And, um, also thinking about, it's not, it's not just on the political floor, right. In arguing legislation, it is, as you were talking about, how do we have those 
those small side conversations, you know, mm-hmm. with friends, with family, yeah. um, and, and do it in a way where um, it opens a space for honest dialogue mm-hmm. um, and exchange. Um, and I know that this is, uh, you know, an area that I have a lot of growth opportunity. Well, um, we all and, do. And I yeah, think we all do. We all and, do. And yeah. um, I think only in, 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 in entering into the conversations with that understanding that, that it, that we need to hold the space for it to be far more complex and nuanced and complicated than I think currently we're doing. Yeah. I'm not sure we're going to, anybody's going to really grow in their understanding. Yeah. And, you know, and that's, that's one of the things as a writer, one of the things I can do is tell people stories Mm -hmm. Um, and have tried to do that. And I'll I'll never forget this dinner that we went to that was uh, with my husband and some of his colleagues. And one sat down and said, I'm a, I don't even know why they announced this. I just must've had a vibe that they were going to tell me who they were. And one said, I'm a an evangelical Christian. And the other mm-hmm. one said, no, I'm a Trumper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just like mm-hmm. that. And I was like, Oh, my husband looked at me and I was just there to be the supportive wife. I was going to say right. words. My husband looks at me and he goes, what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. And they looked at me and they said, go ahead. We don't care if you disagree. So I just said, I have a gay son. Mm-hmm. And they were like, oh. but what I have found to, to be a, a good tool in those mm-hmm. kinds of conversations, they're like, we can talk. It's going to be okay. And I said, okay, well, if you, if you say so, mm-hmm. I try to get to the most base thing we can agree on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And with those two, the most base thing we could agree on was that none of us at that table wanted kids to die. Mm. Yeah. And that's where we launched our conversation from. Like I don't common ground, right? Yeah. Like sometimes like you, it's you, not quite that low mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> of a yeah. bar, but if yeah. that's the lowest bar you can get to, and you can say kids are dying mm-hmm. and here, you know, my kids always been pretty well adjusted and Later, he's gone through some things that he didn't quite tell me at the time because he mm-hmm. we were so entrenched in this this book list that had had negatively impacted him that we he didn't want to make it worse, so he just didn't mm-hmm. tell me certain things that were happening. And he's well adjusted, and they said, "Well, your kid's great." This, the principal's like, "Your kid's fine." I'm like, "That's because he's got me as a mother who never cared." Mm. but he's still not fine in his community. He still lives in fear of Mm -hmm. church and of adults. Those are the Mm -hmm. the two worst places. So when I tell that, and I talk about the people that I've interviewed and I talk about the 19 year old boy that I talked to who was couch surfing and had tried to kill himself three times before he was 19 because he was a gay black kid in Mobile, Alabama. When you tell those stories, those can't help, but have some kind of emotional impact, especially to someone who's a parent. Mm-hmm. because they can put themselves in the, in the shoes of their child and say, well, mm-hmm. I would never want my kid to go through that. So, so, but, but when you're doing those things, what I find is you just feel like I, it's so individual that it feels like such a small step, you know, and I don't even think I would ever change those guys votes. I just might've created a tiny little door of empathy mm-hmm. where they might think of how someone would feel not to be able to go to a doctor freely or to be able to trust that when you go to the emergency room, you're going to be well taken care of yeah, or ask the right questions or gendered in the right way. Or no, those, those simple things, those words that matter so much, especially Mm -hmm. in young people who have less ability to, to let things slide, you know, Yeah, (laughs) as you get older and like Terry, Terry, my friend Terry's like, if you, if you're trying and you mess it up, I'll get over it. But you know, yeah, some kids have a little harder time with, with 
giving people some grace, you know, (laughs) but that, but, but it's because that's not who they are and it's, it is disrespectful and it is not affirming. It's chipping away at their little souls Mm -hmm. with Mm -hmm. words. People don't Mm -hmm. understand just how impactful that can be. So I think when you, but, but when you know the statistics, when I was arguing with the school, I, I said, do you know the statistics on you know, depression and suicide in youth. And he's like, LGBTQ youth. He's like, no. And I said, well, I will tell you what it is. Yeah. So having that at your fingertips, I think at least he started to listen. I met with that principal once a month for a year and he came around Mm -hmm. and he was like, uh, at some point he started taking notes in my Mm -hmm. monthly meetings. And I was like, this is who, who ever would have thought, but it's because he loved my kid Mm -hmm. in spite of at first. And then because of afterward, Mm -hmm. And he was a good man. He mm-hmm. just didn't know, you know, and that's, mm-hmm. that's, I think what's hard. So many seemingly good people are making these judgments or the, having these biases and going through voting for people who are going to damage others. And I, it, it's a mystery to me why, but I do feel like when you have the knowledge of some data behind you and you say 40% of LGBTQ youth have thought about killing themselves. Is this okay with you <laughs> as right. a human being? How right. do we get to that? humanity of everyone is what I, that's what I always try to find mm-hmm. so that we yeah. can have a discussion. And if you don't get mad, if you just say, well, here's my experience, yep. then you have a little bit more of an in, but what do you think? So one of the things that I think some people have a hard time with in terms of data, and it takes a long time. And how do we make that save lives? What, how does it mm-hmm. translate to the end goal and not even do that, but improve lives we have to have the data in order to get money mm-hmm. <laughs> in order to get social and political power. Mm-hmm. So how do you, how does that thread progress in a place where, like where we are, where we don't have, I mean, our data for mobile is extrapolated from national data. It's not specific to mobile because we don't have data. Right. So talk about the importance and the process of how, what that looks like and what we need as a group in order to make that happen. Um, Yeah, it's tricky because power equals money and money equals power, right? So, um, So for example, there are, there's a national survey that's conducted in the US, um, but Alabama, um, let's see, how do I, I'm trying to think about how I can best explain. All right, so it's the idea that um, you have to have a certain amount of money to start to even collect that data. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And um, often to even collect that initial part of data, you've got to pull together so many different people and organizations and it's a lot of volunteer time um, and really doing things on a shoestring. However, what I've seen in my experience is that once you create at least that initial first, first picture, think of it as a black and white stencil as to what's happening or not happening. Um, you then can use that initial picture to advocate for additional funding that can be from state organizations, it can be from national LGBTQ organizations. And then as you get that additional funding, you can then start to fill in that picture. 
with not just uh, primary colors, but shading and nuance to really understand what's happening. You know, and the thing is, is I think it's about like, what's the different type of language for different types of people? Mm-hmm. So for some people, you're talking about the common ground, right? Um, the idea is, is that there's different angles and entry points. I think, uh, you know, finding a, a common ground in terms of what it means to have kids and that experience, that's, that's, that's one point. I think there's also um, a lot of uh, people who are concerned about finances and what's cost effective. And if we're using limited state tax dollars or limited um, funding of an organization, how are we gonna make sure that that money is, is spent well, right? And, and I'm, I'm comfortable, some people may, may push back against this, but I'm also comfortable with the idea that we can say we need this data in order to more effectively and efficiently use our dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, there may be certain programs that do not need to be tailored for the unique needs of LGBTQ individuals. Mm. We don't know until we look at the data, right? Mm-hmm. So let's get the data to see if we're spending state dollars on something, which program needs to be tailored to address unique needs versus which is a program that you can roll out regardless of your um, sexual orientation, gender identity, race, ethnicity, et cetera, et cetera. Like we, we have all of these different identities. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, there's this general acceptance that um, we have differences based on race, ethnicity. We have differences based on age. We have differences based on, you know, sex assigned at birth. I think there's this um, growing recognition that we also have differences based on sexual orientation and gender identity. Mm-hmm. But until we're collecting that data, can we then understand if and when we need to pivot in the actual provision of services? Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, is that common ground uh, based on, on a sense of compassion, a uh, sense yeah. of financial uh, responsibility? Yeah. Right? Uh, that's the thing. I, that, there's, whatever there's multiple... you can go, if it's somebody's pocketbook, if that's all they care about, you've got to find a way to get to that point. Yeah, you have, you have to speak different languages. And yeah. so I think that um, I think that, that, that having a broader toolkit, right? You, you just spoke to the importance of stories and how that can really change hearts and minds. And for some people, only big numbers are going to change it. And for some people, only dollar signs. And for some, and for some, and for some. Mm-hmm. And the idea is how do we build out our ability to advocate in these different um, social and political circles in order to motivate meaningful and lasting and sustainable change. Absolutely. Cause I was just thinking about the needs assessment that we're doing for Southwest Alabama. And you, you talk about the resources that that takes, we've got a marketing team because mm-hmm. we have to know how to tell the story and get people to participate. Yep. You've got the researchers that have to be paid. That's not a free service. So they have to be able to find the people to send the surveys to. The data collectors, right? Yes, the data collectors. So in doing that, how do we reach the ones that are unreachable? How do we reach the kid who was couch surfing? How do we get him access to an online survey? How do we word it in a way that different different levels of education and different socioeconomic groups can process and respond? I mean, there are so many different factors. It's not just like, oh, we're going to send out a survey. We've got to find the most needy people that we can in order to get the data that we need to know what they are. And, you know, I I used to do social security disability work and 
the different experiences of those who had access to healthcare and those who didn't, and the the numbers of people that were my clients that had spent time in prison who had schizophrenia, but never had access to mental health care. I mean, you mm-hmm. want a good lesson in compassion. That was a great lesson in compassion because yeah. this guy was telling me about somebody that he murdered and he was 12 years in federal prison. And I'm reading his, his intake and he's got schizophrenia. And I'm like, did you ever have access to mental health care? And he's like, no. And I said, did, did all these things happen? when you were having an episode or hearing the voices and he's like, yes, mm-hmm. my child probably wouldn't have experienced that because I have access to healthcare, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, I mean, access is a fundamental um, inflection point, right? That um, I, I think, I mean, two things that you're, that you're speaking to. One, um, your first question is how, how do we find people who appear unreachable? And I think, you know, that's something that's evolved a lot in research. There often um, in the past, there's been um, this phrase of hard to reach populations, right? And they can be hard to reach either because of, you know, great geographic um, spread, uh, more often than not hard to reach is that because of a problematic legal and policy um, context whereby it's not safe or, you know, criminalized for them to come forward. So, mm-hmm. uh, people who are often put in that group are, um, uh, you know, people who use drugs, um, often it can be, um, people who identify as LGBTQ. And, um, I think, uh, using the term hard to reach ultimately speaks to a limitation of researchers, and the, the primary way to overcome that divide is by building trust with people who are part of that community themselves mm-hmm. um, so that they can um, read the questions and say, hey, these are the ones that don't make sense. This is one that, um, mm-hmm. like, what you didn't even ask me about this, and this is really important. It's so the it's the idea of meaningful participation of affected communities. Mm-hmm. So the the people who ultimately are trying to serve make sure that they're not um, an endpoint, but instead proactive participants throughout the research process to make sure that the instrument itself, the data collection procedures, the analysis, et cetera, continue to integrate their lived experience, um, the challenges, the opportunities, everything that they face. Mm-hmm. And so, so, so for me, it's always been by, by engaging those individuals themselves in the entire research process that I think has made that hard to reach part um, fade away. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think I'll leave it at that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a lot. So how, how can anybody who's a listener, mm-hmm. what can, what do you, what can they do to help? Okay. From your point of view? Yeah, I think there's a, there's a lot of different things. I mean, you know, first is you can donate your money. <laughs> there's, there's that. <laughs> the biggie. Yeah. Uh, and if you don't have money to donate, um, then consider donating your time, right? Um, and there's a lot of different ways in which our time can be donated. Um, you know, it can be a whole range of different things, helping to drive people from A to B, um, helping to, I mean, in the past it was like stuffing envelopes, but uh, maybe you're a web designer. So, you know, helping to program that survey. I think we all have a much broader range of skills that are useful in some way, shape or form. 
Um, and so really thinking through if you have the financial resources, how to how to um, use them. And if you don't, how how you can potentially use your time. I think there's also um, this this idea of how can we in both our personal and professional lives enter into those conversations in both small and big ways, mm-hmm. right? So um, how is it when you're in the, um, you know, grabbing the water in the break room and you hear something said, um, how, do you, how do you enter in that conversation and, and say like, hey, you know, what, what was your intention behind that, right? And uh, help, help me understand, you know, where you're coming from because from my experience or something like that. Yeah. And I think it's um, really important in terms of how we have these conversations, not to put the responsibility on LGBTQ individuals themselves, right? Because the idea that if you are something, you have to constantly advocate for it's just exhausting. Oh yeah. Um, this is a responsibility of of us all, right? How to have more expansive understandings of gender, uh, moving beyond the masculine and feminine. Um, to recognize that we can all be one, the other, both a mix of in between. Um, and so, so how in, in our, as I said, private and professional conversations, can we really try and navigate those, those difficult conversations, you know, yeah. in our churches, in our, in our Bible study groups, in our um, social circles, at the dinner party. And often um, it's easier sometimes to not say something, right? You know, to just let the moment pass. Um, but the wound that that uh, quote unquote, you know, small conversation or that small slight can leave uh, for yourself, for someone else, whether you know it or not, um, it ends up being deep over time. And so I think that um, really thinking through um, all of those different domains and, and, and then also, you know, um, get out and vote. Yeah. Uh, whoever you vote for, just vote and get yeah. other people to go vote. It, it just, we have too much at stake for massive decisions to be made by a minority of people going out to vote. Um, And so uh, really understanding how incredible um, it is to have the opportunity to vote at all levels, not just, you know, presidential election, Senate, et cetera. Um, But, you know, as we've seen, school boards are powerful. Um, A lot, you know, judges are powerful, right? Um, so understanding and, and taking the time to, and that's hard. I get it. I mean, I just, you know, voted in my first Alabama election and I was just, who are these people? I don't understand their, you know, track record, et cetera. And, and, you know, so taking the time to, to do your research and, and finding your own due North, whatever that may be. Um, but really making sure that these big decisions that are being made are reflective of the masses um, and not just the few, the few people who got out and did actually vote. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and to speak to the conversation point a little bit, um, I always say that until straight people get on board, LGBTQ people will not have power until white people get on board, black people will never have the power they need. We all have to be allies to mm-hmm. the people who are the most underserved. And one of the things I do in my personal life is, is I had a business partner and we had a podcast and she told me that I talked about my son and his boyfriend too much. 
<laughs> it came off as advocacy. I'm like, well, mm-hmm. one thing, I don't consider that a criticism. <laughs> mm-hmm. But secondly, yeah. I talk about my daughter and her boyfriend or my son and his girlfriend. I taught, I have five kids. I talk about all of them when it was a podcast where we talked about our lives a lot. I nicely explained to her. I said, I, I would never ever censor myself for someone else's comfort level because I would never allow my child to see me pretend in any way like he is not the same as every other one of my children in terms of importance and in terms of belonging and in terms of all of the things. So when I speak, I make very sure to never, no matter who I am speaking to, because I know who is going to take note that when I speak freely, I say my son and his boyfriend and my daughter and her girlfriend or my son. Yeah, and his it's really boyfriend. normalizing this range of identities. Yeah. And I and think those having... are small things you can do, especially mm-hmm. if you have a family member, do not mm-hmm. ever hide, do not ever accommodate your words for someone else's ears mm-hmm. because you can see who notices it and who doesn't. Some are just like, yeah, okay. Other people are like, Hmm, did she just mm-hmm. say boy and boyfriend? <laughs> Mm-hmm. You know, my yeah. son and boyfriend. So I think there are certain things you can do to try to keep your conversations like you are in your own home. In my own home, yeah. nobody, nobody cares. And that's just, mm-hmm. you know, poor, poor, yeah. the poor boyfriend was throwing up yesterday and we were all calling to check on him to make sure that he knew how to hydrate. You know, they're, they're young and stupid about taking care of themselves. So I think those, that normalization, even yeah, something right. that small can go a long way. Yeah, I And then the, those people in your circle begin to hear it and think, okay, that's okay that it's Luke and his boyfriend or yeah. You know, Jake and his girlfriend or whoever. So, yeah. but I think you have to, like you said, you do have to find, and you can do it without getting into a fight. Yeah. And, and sometimes I just say, you know what, I have a gay son and I really don't, you know, it, it bothers me to hear you speak that way mm-hmm. or it hurts me. If you hurt yeah. that sometimes people are, they care if they hurt your feelings. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I think that's, that's an important thing. And, and so to wrap this up, what in your move to Alabama, <laughs> Mm-hmm. What gifts have you found in this struggle? Because this is, you are fighting a fight that's an uphill battle, especially where we live. So what gifts do you see that come from this kind of work? Cause it's, it's gotta be daunting a lot. I mean, I've just been dropped into the most amazing network of LGBTQ community communities here in Birmingham. You know, I'm, I'm starting to build it across Alabama. And I just think that, um, with such incredible risk also comes resilience, right? And I think that um, I, I have been so inspired by the people I've met, the people I, I'm, I'm starting to have the opportunity to work and walk alongside with, mm-hmm. and um, really learning from them in terms of what it means to navigate and um, advocate. And uh, I, I just have learned such an incredible amount and I so appreciate you know, people's grace with me being so new mm-hmm. to the South, so new to the, the region um, and the, the ways in which people have kindly sort of brought me along, um, welcomed me into their, their homes, their organizations. Um, I, I just, I'm amazed at the amount that I've learned and I uh, am in awe and have so much respect for um, those who have been here long before me doing this work. And so just really, really holding on to that sense of inspiration um, to see how people 
pull together in such incredibly dynamic and innovative ways to overcome what seems you know, inevitable. And I think that SB 184 and, and the provision of the injunction really spoke to that. It was this incredible collaboration of local and national legal and clinical scholars um, that, 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 that did what seemed impossible and, and, and they made it happen. Yeah. So um, I just really try and hold on to that and uh, and just embrace it. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it. I appreciate you coming on so much. I think this is an important conversation that we probably don't have enough of. Um, data seems to be behind the scenes a lot. <laughs> yes. Especially the process. Always have to have, I talk about data, though. You just let me know and I'll be back. Yeah, absolutely. I will definitely have you back. And if you are listening and you would like to help um, or if you need to connect with an LGBT group, in your area, um, email me at elizabeth at thegiftofthestruggle.com and I can help you if you're local and I can reach out back out to Sarah McCarthy. Absolutely. Um, and she can help us find you some resources. So thank Absolutely. you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you. Take care.